And what I want to explore with you this morning is the last of the four R's. Uh, as I've said a couple of times, really, these four R's belong together. And it's a bit artificial to divide them up and treat them one by one as we've been doing over the weekend. But that's the only way we can... There's so much to say about each of them. That's the only way we can deal with it. But the Christian hope, the hope that God holds out for us in the Gospel of Jesus, is for the return of the King. And that when He comes for the resurrection of the dead, on the great day of reckoning, before the renewal of all things. That's the Christian hope. And this morning we're going to focus on the last of those four R's, the renewal of all things. So let me pray for us as we open God's word together. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are the sovereign creator of all things. We owe to you our life and breath and everything. You're the one who brought the entire cosmos into existence out of nothing by a word. You're the one who ordered it according to your good purposes. You're the one who created humanity in your image and set us to rule over the creation under you. You're the one who, when we turned against you, pursued us and reached out to us and entered our world in your Son, the Lord Jesus, and bore the consequences of our sin, even to the point of death. You, Father, are the one who raised him from the dead and defeated death and seated him at your right hand. You're the one who through him poured out your spirit upon us. You're the one who dwells with us now by your spirit. And, Father, you are the one who has promised to come again and dwell with us and to make everything new. All of that, Father, is pure grace, none of that we deserve. And so we praise you for it and we thank you for it. And we pray now as we turn to your word and explore all that you've promised us about the new heavens and the new earth. We ask that you would lead us into the truth together and that you would fill us with hope as we trust in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you don't have to live very long to see that the world is in a mess, do you? There are many, many good things. Uh, in the world, by God's grace, which he preserves by his grace. Uh, and living in this part of the world, as we do in Australia, at peace, uh, especially in Port Macquarie, uh, it's really the best of the best, isn't it? And it's very easy at times to forget of the mess that is around us in the world. But you don't have to live very long or travel very far to remember that this world is not the way it's meant to be. Uh, that was brought home very clearly to me a number of years ago when Annette and I travelled to the Philippines on a, a short-term mission awareness trip, really just to see what uh, God's people were doing over there in reaching out with the gospel and building new churches. And we participated a little bit and helped where we could, but really it was about us learning and seeing what God was doing through his people in the Philippines. And we had a wonderful three weeks uh, sharing in fellowship with our brothers and sisters there and participating in some of their work, reaching out to the kids and... Uh, we ran a couple of kids' programs and that kind of thing. Until, I think it was two or three nights before we were due to come home, something like that. I woke up early in the morning, about 4am, uh, with a sharp pain in my abdomen. Uh, and I tried to ignore it for 5, 10, 15 minutes, but it kept getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and uh, by 7 o'clock, when others were waking up, I spoke to the leaders of our group and they said that they should take me to the, the hospital and they put me in a little jeepney, one of those... Um, uh, Filipino cars slash carts and drove me to the nearest hospital. We were way out in the middle of nowhere 
uh, thankfully there was a hospital not too far away. And uh, they decided, the doctors, when I got to the hospital, that I had appendicitis and that it needed to come out. And so they sent Lynette across the road to the chemist with a shopping list. And she bought there the anaesthetic and the scalpel and the suture. And they operated. And halfway through the operation, while I was still uh, under anaesthetic, and before they had finished stitching me up, one of the nurses, somebody came out and said, Planet, I'm sorry, we've run out of suture material. <laughs> Can you go and get some more? <laughs> and so off the went across the road, bought some more suture material, and they tied me up. Uh, and uh, all was good. I've still got the scar to tell the story. <laughs> uh, but I'm telling you that story because lying next to me there in the operating theatre was a little boy. And his family, uh, I don't know what condition he had, I don't know if you know more than that. I was pretty out to it. But his family didn't have the resources, or, or perhaps his condition was too bad, I'm not sure of the details. But there was I, who, uh, through God's grace and uh, through people being able to support me, was able to be healed and through the nature of my condition. And there was this boy next to me, also under the care of the same doctors in the same hospital, a local, who died on the operating table, or shortly afterwards, and he was four years old. And that, just that parallel there of my life and his brought home to me in a really powerful way that had never been uh, impressed to me in, in such a way before, that this world is not the way it's meant to be, that this world is in a mess, and that this is God's world. And when we look out on the mess of the world and we experience things like that, uh, I touched on these at the beginning, on the first day, but there's a couple of different ways that I think we tend to respond. I see these responses in myself. And maybe you see them in yourself as well and in those around you. Some of us, I think, particularly those of us who are young and idealistic, think that we're going to change the world. And I spoke to you about my friend who's packed up from her life in Sydney, given up on the church precisely because she didn't think the church was doing anything about the problems in the world and has gone to London and is using her law degree to do good there to try to change the world. And then there are others of us... Um, I'm generalising here, but I think perhaps as we get older and we realise the futility of our efforts to change the world, that after 10 or 15 or 20 years of doing your best and even working with others, the world is still a mess. Uh, perhaps I think as we get older, there's a tendency to retreat into ourselves and to give up on the hope of the world ever being changed and to, well, to settle for small hopes, for things that can distract us from the pain and the difficulty that we see around us, uh, which I called on the other day, the, the small hopes of weekends and holidays, providing for our kids, chocolate, sex, uh, all good things, and yet not really an answer for the problems in the world that we see around us. Both of those, of course, are inadequate responses. Uh, you see one of them in this song, a very popular song from 2007 by John Mayer, who uh, won a Grammy Award with this song where he sings, one day our generation is going, to change, is going to rule the population. So we keep waiting, waiting on the world to change. 
Uh, and if you know the song, the context of this chorus, which is repeated throughout the song, is that he's, he's frustrated with those who are older than him, those who are in power, those who should be changing the world but aren't. And he's expressing his confidence that when we get there, when our generation is pulling the strings, then things will change because we will change the world. And you can see there's that, that two-sided thing through there. He's frustrated with the older generation for their retreat and their failure to change the world. And he's full of his own arrogance and his own power and his expectation that he's going to change the world or his generation is going to change the world when they get there. And yet the problem with both of these responses is that there's no place for God in them. And as I've been saying all weekend, as God teaches us over and over again in the Scriptures, if there's any hope for the world, it's only the hope that God can bring and only the hope that he has set to work already in the Gospel of Jesus. And so that's what I want to now. The good news is that in Jesus, and especially in Jesus' death and resurrection, God has begun the work of renewing the entire cosmos. Let me explore that with you. We're going to start, as always, in the Old Testament. Now, we've looked already at the beginning of the story of uh, Noah earlier on. Come now with me to Genesis chapter 8, towards the end of the story of Noah, where we read this. Noah built an altar. This is after the flood has subsided and Noah's come out of the ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odour, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of human kind. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from you. Nor will I ever again destroy every, every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. You see what God is expressing there? His commitment to his creation. That even though he has cleansed the world of evil, through the flood, he's not given up on it. He's not destroyed it and thrown it away in the garbage. The flood was God cleansing the world precisely because he loves the world and because his plan is to make it new. And you see that already here in chapter 9, verse 1, where after Noah comes out of the ark, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Be fruitful. And multiply, fill the earth. And then in verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. If those words are ringing bells, it's because they're the very same words that God spoke to Adam, aren't they, at the beginning, when God created Adam in his image in Genesis chapter 1. And so what we've got here is God making a new start with humanity. You could perhaps even call it a new creation. Because what God has done is cleanse the world of sin and evil through the flood, and now he's beginning again to make the world new in Noah and his descendants. Of course, as we keep reading the story of Noah, which I haven't printed for you here, you see that Noah isn't up to the task. Just like Adam, he fails. And yet God's commitment here to his creation is crystal clear. God spells it out in the continuing dialogue between God and Noah here in Genesis chapter 9, when God said to Noah, and to his sons with him, as for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and, notice this, 
my covenant with every living creature that is with you, with the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. You see there God's covenant, God's binding commitment, that's what a covenant is. God's covenant is with Noah and his sons and with every living creature that came out of the ark. The word that's used here, I'm establishing my covenant, actually refers back to an earlier covenant that God made with the creation at creation. There's very deliberate language that gets used throughout Genesis. Uh, Bill Dumbrell, uh, an Australian Presbyterian, uh, has shown this really clearly in his study of um, uh, Genesis, that the language is always, I will make or cut a covenant if it's a new covenant. And it's, I will establish my covenant if it's referring to an older binding agreement that God is now reaffirming, recommitting to, re-establishing. And that's what's happening here. I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the living creatures. When did God first make that covenant? When did God first commit himself to his creation? At the point of creation, when he made it. And so God continues, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and what? The earth. You see, here God's concern is, yes, with humanity as the high point of his creation, made in his image. Yes, with Noah and his sons, but not just with Noah and his sons, but with all the living creatures on the earth, and even with the earth itself. Because he's the creator God, and this is his world, and he loves it, and he will restore it. You see, this same commitment of God to his creation reaffirmed in the prophets. I've got here for you Jeremiah 33 over the page. And what we see here is that God's plan to bless and save the world through Abraham and his descendants, through the nation of Israel, which comes to its fulfillment in Jesus. God's plan to bless and save the world is rooted in his commitment to his creation. Have a look at this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if any of you could break my covenant with the day, and my covenant with the night, so that day and night would not come at their appointed time. Can anyone break that covenant? No. That's the implied answer. Only then could my covenant with my servant David be broken, so that he would not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with my ministers the Levites. Just as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will increase the offspring of my servant David, and the Levites who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed how these people say, the two families that the Lord chose have been rejected by him, and how they hold my people in such contempt that they no longer regard them as a nation? But thus says the Lord, only if I had not established my covenant with day and night and the ordinances of heaven and earth would I reject the offspring of Jacob and my servant David and not choose any of his descendants as rulers over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have mercy upon them. You see what's going on here? Uh, if you're picking up the echoes from earlier in the Bible, what you'll see is that all of God's covenants, all of the times that God has committed himself 
to the world and to people are coming together here because really they're all just one aspect of one deep commitment that God has to the world that he has made. He speaks explicitly about his covenant with the day and his covenant with the night, his commitment to the creation. He also speaks less explicitly but about his covenant with Abraham. Did you notice the language in verse 22 about uh, the host of heaven, the stars of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea which cannot be measured. And you might remember those are exactly the words that God used when he made his promise to Abraham, that he should be a, become a great nation and that his descendants would be numbered like the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. He mentions explicitly God's covenant with his servant David, the descendant of Abraham, the king of Israel, the one in and through whom God was going to work out his purposes to bless the world, where God promised to David that he would never lack a descendant on the throne to rule over Israel and over the nations. And so you see here what Jeremiah is teaching us, what God is teaching us through Jeremiah, is that his commitment to creation, his commitment to Abraham, his commitment to David, his covenants, are all of one piece. They're all one binding agreement, one deep commitment of God's part to his creation, to redeem his creation and to save humanity as part of it. I'm stressing this point because sometimes in the way that we've thought about this in the church and talked about it, we've spoken as if God's plan to save human beings is separate from his act in creating the world. Uh, I don't know if this kind of way of thinking about it is familiar to you. Maybe it's not, uh, in which case wonderful. But uh, I've heard people talk about it like this, particularly when we're talking about evangelism. We say things like, well, the, the world is kind of like the Titanic and it's sinking, it's stuck in sin, it's going down. And so what we need to do is preach the gospel, share the good news with people, so that we can get them into the lifeboats, so that we can get them off the sinking Titanic, and they can be rescued when the world goes down. And you see how when we think like that, and that therefore, sorry, let me fill in the picture, therefore anything else we do on the Titanic really doesn't matter, as we're just rearranging deck chairs on a sinking ship. And so the only things that really matter in life are speaking the gospel to people, and anything related to that, perhaps uh, studying the scriptures, uh, being part of church and Bible study, but the rest of life is just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, waiting for it to go down, and what really matters is getting people off the Titanic and into the lifeboats by telling them about Jesus so they can be saved. Now, I hope you've heard me say earlier, and you'll hear me say again, that calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus is absolutely crucial to our mission as the church. It is the way that God saves people. The point I'm making now is that that's not a separate thing from God's commitment to his creation. That's not a separate thing from the rest of life. The two belong together because they find their home in God's holistic plan to bring salvation not just to people but to his whole creation. I hope that makes sense and uh, perhaps if there's some questions you can ask me now or in the question time. Uh, but we'll keep exploring this idea as we're going ahead. Because of this deep commitment that God has to his creation, it's no surprise to see that in a creation stuck in sin and marred by death, God promises to bring a new heavens and a new earth. Look at Isaiah 65 here. For I am about to create, God speaks to the prophet, I am about to create a new heavens 
and a new earth, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And when you read that, you might think, okay, this is a God's going to replace the present heavens and the present earth with a new, a different, a separate heavens and a separate earth. But as soon as you keep reading, you realise that can't be what the prophet means. Because look at the description he gives us of the new heavens and the new earth. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy, and its people as a delight. So this new heavens and new earth will have Jerusalem and people dwelling in it. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. Okay, so there will be human life in this new creation. Or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For the one who dies of a hundred years will be considered a youth. And the one who falls short of a hundred will be considered a curse. They shall build houses in this new heavens and new earth and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labour in vain. There's going to be work in this new heavens and earth. Or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, but, its, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. You see, the character of this new heavens and new earth is, well, it's just like the old heavens and the old earth, except with all the effects of sin and death taken away. And so perhaps it's helpful for us to speak about it as a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. I think we're familiar with that kind of language. We use it all the time, uh, particularly in Sydney where people are obsessed with real estate. And uh, uh, some friends of ours recently bought an old dump. Uh, it cost them 700 grand or more uh, because it's in the inner west of Sydney. But really it was an old dump. Uh, the, the garden was overgrown. Um, it had a someone had attempted to build a wood-fired pizza oven in the back, and it's just bad and ugly. Uh, the the decor all the way through was uh, broken. Uh, uh, the carpet was disgusting. Uh, the walls needed a fresh coat of paint. And I thought, what on earth are you doing when they bought this place for seven hundred grand? And then we, we don't see these friends that often, but we went back months later and they'd started to do some work. They'd started to get the garden under control uh, and they'd started, they'd ripped up the carpet and they put in some nice floorboards and they'd knocked out a wall and they'd repainted and they'd redone the kitchen and then they redid the bathroom and over time as we keep going back and visiting these friends, I, I feel like saying to them, you've got a new house. And it kind of is a new house except it's the same house, renewed. And you see how we can that's how this kind of language can work. And I think that's what's going on here for us in Isaiah. Is when Isaiah speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, he's speaking about the old earth made so new that you might not even recognise it. It's the same earth, and yet it's radically transformed. Just like Jesus' resurrection body was the same body, and yet radically transformed. Just like our bodies at the resurrection will be the same bodies, and yet radically transformed, set free from sin and death. Well, in Isaiah, 
That promise is exactly that. It's a promise of a new heavens and a new earth. It's a prophecy of what God is about to create. But when we get to the New Testament, we see the beginning of that promise in its fulfillment. Like everything else in God's plans for his world, in Jesus, it's here now, but there's also more to come. And I want to explore with you now the now and the not yet of God's work to renew his world. The place to begin, of course, is with Jesus' resurrection. Uh, we spoke about that at length last night, so I'm only going to touch on it briefly now, but it's in Jesus' resurrected body that God has taken one part of his creation into death, through death, and out the other side, raising it up and making it new. Romans 6 verse 9 is the key verse there, that death no longer has dominion over him. He is free from death because God has raised him up to a new kind of life. That was last night. The remarkable thing I want to show you now is that God has chosen to share that new creation life with us now already. Have a look at this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Well, actually, I'm still the same in a lot of ways to how I used to be. I'm still lacking my hair, and I've still got a little bit of fat that I'd like to get rid of, and I'm still in my same relationships with my family, and my mum and dad are still the same. What does he mean that everything else... Well, if this is such a dramatic change when anyone is in Christ. They've gone from death to life. Their sins have been forgiven. They've been washed clean. They've been adopted as a child of God. It's such a dramatic change that the only way you can really speak about it is by saying they're a new creation. And that's you. That's us if we're in Christ. Or Galatians 6, 14-17. May I never boast, Paul says, of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's like the world has died and I've died and that old way of me relating to the world is over, crucified, done away with. And I'm a new being in Christ. And I relate to the world in a new way because God has made me new in Jesus. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything but what? A new creation is everything. As for those who will follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God, the people of God. So I want you to stop for a second. Look around the room. Eyeball some people. And as you do, know that you are eyeballing the new creation. Here it is. Right here in this room, God has set his power at work. When he raised Jesus from the dead, he set his power at work when he worked in you, each of you, by his spirit, and brought you out of death and into life in Jesus. And he's exercised his power when he drew us together as the church. But the church is the new creation, the beginning of the new creation in the world. Not just this church, of course. Not just this little group in this little room. <laughs> but the church around the world, all of our brothers and sisters, throughout history, down through the centuries, and in all the nations. All over the world, God is making the world new and he's doing it by starting with us. Isn't that remarkable? 
And so David Bosch, uh, who writes on mission, puts it like this. The primary mission of the church in the world is to be the new creation. How do you do that? Well, perhaps one way of thinking about it is thinking about the church as a, an outpost of God's heavenly rule. A colony of God's heavenly rule. Uh, Paul used that language in the passage we looked at yesterday in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven and we're expecting a saviour from there. It's like we're a colony of heaven. God has invaded his world and set up little colonies all over the place. Colonies of heaven on earth. Everywhere there's a gathering of believers. Everywhere there's a church. It's a colony of heaven on earth. And so what do you do when you're a colony? Well, you try to reflect the way that things are done in the homeland, don't you? Just think about it. Australia was originally a colony of the Brits. And what did we do? Well, we played their sports, cricket and rugby. We planted their trees. And so a lot of our gardens still, even now, hundreds of years later, uh, have English trees. Uh, we adopted their political system and their legal system. Uh, even the side of the road that we drive on, we got from the Brits. Because what have we done here in Australia, in this little colony of the motherland? We've created life here as much as possible to reflect what life is like there. That's what colonies do. And the church is a colony of heaven, an outbreak of the new creation where God has invaded his world and has begun to make things new. And so what should we be doing in the church? Well, we should be praying that God would work in us so that his will would be done here on earth starting with us in the church, just as it is done in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? And then we should get to work living that out in our relationships and in our uh, mission in the world. Again, I hope you can see the kind of impact that will have on the way that we think about evangelism. Uh, sometimes I find myself, and I hear others speaking, as if the way that the church's job in the world is just to speak the gospel and to look for opportunities to say words about Jesus. And I think when we take this perspective, we realise that that is a central part of our task in the world. Uh, we must speak of Jesus at every opportunity and pray that God gives us opportunities to speak of Jesus. But that's not the only part of our task. That forms the central thrust of a more holistic, a broader mission, which is to be the new creation in the world, to live as God's people, Jesus said, how will people know that you are my disciples? By the love that you have one for another. And he says, as we love each other in detailed, concrete ways, as we share our lives, as we care for those who are sick and needy in prayer and in practical ways, as we rejoice for those who are rejoicing, we become a distinctive community in the world. We stand out. Paul says in Philippians 2, we should shine like stars in the universe because here is a place where God is at work on earth, making things new. And that as we do that, that spills out into our relationships outside the church as we go to work and as we chat with our neighbours. And they notice that we're different. And they say, why are you so full of hope? And you've got a reason to tell them why you're so full of hope. Well, it's because Jesus has come and died for my sin and raised from the dead. And we speak the gospel in that situation in the context of that broader mission of the church, of being God's people in the world. Uh, Tim Foster puts it like this. The expression of these values, he's writing on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus 
calls his disciples to a radically distinctive lifestyle, to be the new creation community. The expression of these values in the Sermon on the Mount by the church is essential to its successful engagement in mission. You see, if we're speaking about Jesus but our lives individually and as a group are denying the very message, what good will that be? Just as Torah obedience, as law obedience was essential for the success of Israel's mission to the nations, the church's oddness is essential to its faithfulness. I like that way of putting it. It's not, you've got to be careful, it's not saying we, we deliberately try to be odd just for being odd's sake, <laughs> that we find out what everyone else is doing and then do something different. No, he's not saying that. He's saying we be the church, we act as God's people in the world, we follow his law for our life. We live in love with each other, and as we do that, we will be on. There aren't other communities in the world like this. This is a unique thing in God's world, because God is at work here to make the world new. And as we live out what it means to be God's people, in love with each other, and let that spill over into the world around us, the church's oddness is essential to its faithfulness. The logic of the Sermon on the Mount is that the disciples serve the world by demonstrating that a new society is breaking in. Is that quite a great way of putting it? Which offers an alternative communal existence shaped by the character and purposes of God. People should look at the church from the outside and say, wow, yeah, that's how life's meant to be. I want to be part of that. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? Because uh, the assumption there is that our corporate life together will be distinctive like that. It'll be the kind of life that people will look at and go, that's odd, but I really like it. I can see that that's how life works best. I can see that that's how life is meant to be. And then they'll start asking us about why we live this way. And we tell them about Jesus. Because the world is so deeply immersed in the prevailing order, the only way for the world to know that it is being redeemed is for the church to point to the Redeemer by being a redeemed people. The anticipated outcome is that others will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Just as apostasy has fallen away from God, it destroyed Israel's capacity to mission, so accommodation to the values of the world poses the greatest of dangers to the church, diluting its capacity to bear witness to the radical nature of the new order. See what he's saying? I've summarised it down the bottom there in this phrase, that God has no other plan to save the world except from the plan, apart from the plan that is set to work in Christ and is applying now in the world by His Spirit and is doing that through us, the body of Christ, through the church. That's how God is planning to save the world. That's how God will make everything new. Of course... That's all in the now. And we still need to look at the not yet, the renewal of creation itself when Jesus comes. <coughs> I've got three passages here, uh, and we'll spend more time in the first one than the second two. Each of them deserves uh, you know, a whole morning on its own. But I just wanted to give you a taste of the ways that the New Testament speaks about the new creation. I've chosen Romans 8 first because this is the one that is the most... Uh, prosaic. It's the least poetic. Uh, all of the language that we have in the Bible about God's future is poetic at some level. It's describing a reality that doesn't yet exist. And yet this one is, I think, the, the least poetic, but perhaps the most literal. So let's have a look. 
Paul says, speaking in the context of sufferings for the Roman church, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits, what a beautiful picture, the whole creation waits with eager longing. The creation is on the edge of its seat. For the revealing of the children of God. When are the children of God going to be revealed? When will it be clear who is in Christ and who is not? Well, on the day of judgment, when Christ comes, when he is revealed and we are revealed in him at the resurrection. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That is, God subjected the creation to futility. When he put the curse on the ground in Genesis 3, you remember, following Adam's sin. God subjected the creation to decay and frustration and futility. And we see that and we experience that in the world around us in all sorts of ways. The earth is literally cracking apart as we've seen in Christ church. It's a world in decay. But God did that in hope that the creation itself would be set free, liberated from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You've got to use your imagination here. What would it look like to live in a world that was set free from sin and death? Well, in this imagination exercise, the first thing you've got to do is think of all the effects of sin and death in the world and take them out of your picture of the world around you. So try this. Imagine a world with no violence. Imagine a world with no sickness. No common colds, no Alzheimer's, no dementia, no cancer. Imagine a world with no lust, no pornography, no adultery. Imagine a world with no greed. Imagine a world free from sin and death in all its forms. Can you imagine that world? Well, you might say that that would, even if it's this same world, you might say that that would be a a new world, wouldn't it? A world without all that. That would be a new earth. And that's what God has promised in Jesus. That's what God has begun to do by raising Jesus from the dead and by sharing that new life with us in the church by His Spirit. And that's what God will complete when Jesus comes. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains. Another great image of the creation, like a pregnant woman. And the women can uh, probably appreciate this better than we men. But the, the creation is groaning in labour pains. It's, it's painful, but you know it's going to be worth it because of what comes at the end. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. We feel the decay of the world as well. We know the world is not the way it's meant to be. While we wait for the fulfilment of our adoption, which is what? The resurrection of our bodies. You see how it all comes together here. When Jesus comes and the dead are raised and evil is done away with in the judgment, then the world is made new the way it was always meant to be. And we can live with God forever in life and peace. That's one inch. Uh, and you can read the rest. There's more in that passage, but I'm aware of the time. I'm keen to show you these other passages as well. 2 Peter 3, uh, where Peter is writing in the context of those who are scoffing, making fun of the Christian hope. Uh, we know that same kind of situation today, don't we? It was there already in the first century when Peter was writing. 
And Peter says, first of all, you must understand this, that in the last days, that's, that's what we're in now, the last days, the period between Jesus' resurrection and his return, that's the last days. But in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing changes. The world is still in a mess. But they deliberately ignore this fact. That by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water, through which the world at that time was deluged with water and perished. What are you talking about? The flood. He's saying they, these scoffers, they ignore the fact that God has already once cleansed the world of sin at the flood. And they ignore that because it tells us that God will yet again cleanse the world when Jesus comes. See verse 7, By the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the godless. The end will come just as it came in the flood. <coughs> but do not ignore this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about keeping his promise. But why is he waiting? Why is he holding off from sending the Lord Jesus, from coming to dwell with us again, from raising the dead, from judging the world? Well, it's because he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all of his chosen people to come to repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. And you might read that and think, okay, isn't this now talking about the creation being destroyed? But we've got to read it in the context of the parallel that Peter himself has given us. He said, this destruction of the earth by fire at the end will be like the destruction of the earth at the time of Noah by water in the flood. What kind of a destruction was that? Well, it was a destruction of all that was evil in the world, not of the cosmos itself. It was a cleansing and therefore a renewal of the world rather than throwing the whole thing out in the garbage. The Belgic Confession, uh, which is one of those great reformed confessions of faith in the time of the Reformation uh, in 16th century Europe, puts it like this. Finally, we believe, according to God's word, that when the time appointed by the Lord is come, which is unknown to all preachers, and the number of the elect of God's chosen people is complete, our Lord Jesus will come from heaven, bodily and visibly, as he ascended with great glory and majesty to declare himself judge of the living and the dead, and he will burn this old world in fire and flame. Why? In order to cleanse it. I think that captures perfectly what we're seeing here in 2 Peter of the world being reserved for fire, verse 7, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the godless. It's not a destruction of the world wholesale, but a removal of the world from all that is evil, all that is a result of sin and death. Finally, yep. Good. Uh, there are, yes. Uh, and perhaps we can talk about them in some more detail later. Um, yeah, but my reading of this is that the language here is about um, things being disclosed. Uh, so it's a, 
it's not things being taken away completely, but the word there, dissolved, uh, which is in verse 10, the elements will be dissolved with fire. Uh, well, there's a few questions. What are the elements being spoken about? Well, does it mean the stuff the world is made of, or is it the elements of evil, the powers uh, that Paul talks about as the, the evil powers in the heavenly realms? Um, yeah, we can talk about that. That's quite a detailed question, so it'd be good to chat about it. But I, I, the giveaway for me is that the destruction of the earth by fire at the end is set in parallel with the flood. It's, the, the hint we're being given by Peter himself here is think of it like the flood. Yes, it will be a destruction of the earth, but it will be a, a kind of cleansing destruction like the flood was. So the same kind of picture in uh, Revelation 21, which we've read a couple of times now. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And again, you might think, okay, is this a replacement? But when you read down in verse 5, says, and the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. So we've got here together, side by side, renewal language, I'm making all things new, and first heavens, first earth passing away, and new heavens and new earth. And I think what is being captured here is the fact that the new heavens and the new earth will be so radically different, because sin and death will be taken away, that if you look at them, just like my friend's house, you might say, it's a new house. I don't recognise it. And yet, it's the same house. Made new. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. Notice that all of this comes from God. New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. God comes to dwell among his people. And they will be his peoples in fulfilment of the covenant promise, and God himself will be with them. End of verse 4. For the first things, the translation we had read was the old order of things. It's not a bad way of translating it. The old order of things had passed away, because God is making everything new. And so I'll summarise it again in that phrase I've given you a couple of times. God is more interested in renovation than demolition. And that gives us hope for ourselves when we know our own sin. And we know that God is more interested in renovating your life than destroying it. And that in Christ, he has found a way to do that. And it gives us hope when we look at the world around us, when we realise that God is more interested in renovating the world than destroying it. Because this is his world which he made and which he has bound himself to by covenant because he loves it and he will renew it when Jesus comes. So what can we say to those two common responses that we started with? Retreating to the small hopes or changing the world by our efforts in technology and education, in law and medicine, whatever it happens to be. Well, I think the first thing we need to realise is if we want to try and change the world and try and save it, we're too late. Because God has already begun to do it in Jesus. And that therefore if we want to play a part in the work that God is doing to save the world, we need to jump on board with what God is already doing. And what is God doing? He's raised Jesus from the dead. He's called us to be his people in the church by his spirit. And he's renewing the world, starting with the church. And so what does it mean for us to play our part in the renewal of the world that God is bringing about? It means being faithful as his people in the world. 
loving each other, serving each other, being that distinctive community, witnessing to the world that a new creation is on the way, and then letting that flow out into the world around us, both as a church as we serve the world and in our individual lives as we go out as God's people into our workplaces and into our families and all around the world, anticipating the day when God will come and make everything new. How about I pray?